0: Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We hope that you all enjoyed the professors in stepping into the Ivory Tower Boiler Room last week. If you haven't, definitely listen to it because today's episode follows a similar trajectory. It's actually called Peculiar Affairs in Academia with Di- Dr. Michael Neverdakis. Um, so before we get into that, and before you figure out what is so peculiar in academia, which foreshadows our haunting theme of October, I'm actually broadcasting from Stony Brook University. Um, I'm in my office and my office mate is none other than our own Jaren Usta. So hi, Jaren
1: hi andrew greetings from stony brook university humanities building
0: yeah we're not going to reveal exactly where we are but we don't want anyone to you know just in case follow us (laughs) but thank you jaren she took time out of her lesson planning to say hi to you all so thanks for being our new marketing assistant um okay so uh, Jaren is now going back into her corner. Uh, <laughs> so what I wanted to say about this episode is that Dr. Neverdakis's interview acts as a sort of professor in case study. So he talks about what do you do when your academic advisor falls off the map? How do you figure out an academic pathway when the odds are stacked against you? that dreaded notion of imposter syndrome, paranoia that PhD students face. This is a really important conversation and he helps us think through it. So we don't just present the academic dread and paranoia. There are ways to work around it. And I want to actually note that Dr. Neverdakis has been in contact with me and He opened up about what he's currently doing. So let me tell you all. So he said that he is now a part-timer at two new colleges. Uh, One hired him literally days before the semester began. I'm reading his email to me, so this is verbatim. Um, he, He said that pay is difficult because he's being considered an independent contractor, but he has academic work for the time being. Um, he's working his way through the murkiness of academia, and he's coming out on the other side. So this is a real um, conquer story as a case study for the professors in. And what I want to do before you hear um, Dr. Neverdakis's interview is this is the first time we've actually gotten an ivory tower boiler room voicemail. So if you didn't know, um, on our anchor, you can leave us a voicemail. Um, We listen to them all, I um, actually will respond back to you. So my very own friend, Kelsey Dufresne, jumped at the chance to send a voicemail my way I said, if you could do this for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast community, it would be so exciting. And she agreed to talk about her digital humanities and public humanities vision of the work that she does and how she goes against the grain with traditional academia. So I thought this would be a really important voicemail to highlight before getting into Dr. Neverdakis's interview. Um, In the interview, I'm joined with our very own Adam Katz. Oh, and I'm Andrew Rimby, by the way. I probably should have said that at the beginning, but you've stuck it out so far. So hi, I'm Andrew. uh, And we welcome you all to the podcast. If you haven't liked the podcast, subscribe, share it, please. It really helps review the podcast. Um, All the exposure that you can do with the podcast is so helpful and necessary. Um, So We hope you enjoy. Here is Kelsey Dufresne's voicemail to the Ivory Tower. Then you will hear our theme song, Lover Man. And then you'll hear from Dr. Neverdakis. Okay, hope you all are staying safe and healthy out there. Bye everyone.
1: Hi, this is Kelsey Dufresne. I am a big fan and friend of Andrew. So I'm very happy to be sending in a voice message for you all today. Um, but some maybe intro and context for me. I am currently in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's raining here, so you might be able to hear the rain, but I am a PhD student at NC State University where I study communication, rhetoric, and digital media. I'm really there for the digital media portion of that and focusing on educational tools and media art media and incorporating media into more educational avenues and with that um i feel like a lot of what i do is also shaped by my past experiences of my educational trajectory i didn't come into the phd route maybe um in a more traditional sense um, my undergrad degree is in english education i have my teaching license for the state of north carolina i don't have the Common Core standards memorized, but pretty close. Um, I am very familiar with a lot of the expectations, the realities, and um, the day to not maybe not the full day to day, but a lot of the um, what it's like to be a teacher and what it's like to be a student in the United States public school system, which is very unique. And because of that, after I did my student teaching, I um, I was simultaneously applying to grad school because I thought I'd want to teach. In another state someday, and get out of North Carolina, and you need a master's degree in many northern states. And when I was in my master's degree, I realized that I felt like I could affect perhaps a little bit more change for the public education system being outside of it than being in it, um, which is really sad to think about, actually. But um, I'm really enjoying what I do and getting to focus on work that is for youth and for communities and for learning. And so I like that a lot Um, because of that, I'm really interested in public humanities and um, critical issues of accessibility. And to me, accessibility is just having radical openness, having radical opportunities that are scaffolded for different people of all sorts of different people, all different communities, all different cultures, all different abilities. So that way everyone has access to something. And like when we think of a building, there might be different points of access into a building. There might be a stairwell, there might be a fire escape, there might be steps going into a door, there might be a ramp, but um, there might be an elevator. And so those are perhaps like a couple different avenues of accessibility. And so how often do we think of Points of entry in our own work or in our own projects, and I think it's really important to keep that in mind, especially when we're doing work for the community. Um, And because I'm interested in public access or public humanities and public accessibility, really, I'm not interested in creating work for um, the academy to read. And that is, I'm not interested in staying in this insular silo of the the academy at all. Um, I my writing is not for um the academy it's not for professors respectfully (laughs) and so and that's okay I think um it it doesn't always have to be and I think uh I didn't was not exposed to a lot of that writing in my own studies but I'm finding it now kind of working beyond um core curriculum and such and so it's been really wonderful and I think it'd be exciting um to have even more of a wave of that and I'm sure there is I just haven't yet found it so if you all are also writing for the public please reach out to me I'd love to talk to you um but with that I have found that there's some critical issues with the academy as many of us know um there's a lot of this academic elitism, there's a lot of um, insular isolation and territorialism, and it's very confusing, Um, especially when I'm coming from education where I remember being in the classroom, folks just shared lesson plans and um, would help each other. And um, like I bounce ideas off of my mom all the time when it comes to teaching the classes I teach now at State. And it's just so much more of a communal activity and practice. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Um, It's not about credit in the classroom. Um, Never once, when I was teaching, did I say, like, this lesson plan discussion question series is brought to you by et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And credit is very important. I'm not trying to say credit is important, but I feel like in the academy, there's too much focus on the cv line credit and not enough on communal collaboration and i don't really know even what that would look like um but it's just something i think about a lot these issues of um community and collaboration and lack thereof and because i think andrew and i have talked about this there needs to be like a coming paradigm shift and i hope like um I think that is coming um, where I think public humanities just will become the humanities very much like how digital humanities will probably just become um, it will will be less new wave and will just be how we do humanities we use computers to study the humanities and work with the humanities and so I think in the future, um, maybe studying humanities will just be working with and through thinking through concerns with the public. Um, or maybe it's because I come from an education background, which is directly a public serving role um, that I have kind of these ideas, but these are just things I think about. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I think a lot about about issues and um, the way that people meet media, the way we learn and the way we engage with others beyond the people that we engage with directly. And so um, if you'd like to connect with me, please email me at kvdowns at ncsu.edu. And I'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for the ivory tower boiler room for having me and I look forward to any coming conversations. Thank you. I also add, want to add one more note, sorry. <laughs> I am in no means an expert um, at all. I'm very much a novice in all of this. I kind of revel in being a novice and being in a learner. And so, um, yeah, I just feel like that's also an important contextual piece to it all too. All right. Thanks. Mm Thanks.
0: Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm here with my main squeeze co-host, Adam Katz,
1: <laughs> feeling very to...
0: humorous on this Friday that we're recording. Um, hi, Adam. And we're here with our special guest,
2: uh, broadcasting to us from Athens, Greece, Michael Nevordakis.
0: Yes, thanks. thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. So um, I'm not going to dwell so much on how I can't wait to be in Athens. And it's one of my top 10 destinations to go to to see the Acropolis, Uh, but (laughs) no more. I'm not going to go down that (laughs) rabbit hole. Uh, So, Michael, thank you like Adam said for joining us. Um, You shared actually a Stony Brook connection is how you first got in contact with us. So do you want to tell the audience? how you found us?
3: Yeah, it was totally random. I'm a Stony Brook alum, first of all. I completed my bachelor's layer in 2005 and then also my master's in 2007. Uh, So obviously I'm very familiar with the university and I'm still subscribed to certain mailing lists from there. So I believe it was the alumni association or something like that that sent something out that I happened to click on a few months ago and your podcast was mentioned there. So I I saw it and I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I looked into it and uh, that's how we eventually connected. Very cool.
0: Yeah, it's exciting that the outreach is working. Um, You are a product of that. But Michael, so (laughs) what did you get your um, bachelor's in at Stony Brook?
3: I was in political science in my master's as well. I mean, the master's
0: program is in public policy, but it's in the Department of Political Science.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this is quite exciting for our new theme on public humanities and scholarship and making the content accessible to the general public, which all of you listening, if you haven't listened to our roundtable, introducing the theme. Yeah. Um, so Which... which- we understand, Michael, you have a direct connection with because mm-hmm. you used to
2: have a podcast about public policy.
3: Right, yes. For about a decade, I produced and hosted a podcast slash radio program uh, called the Dialogos Radio, Dialogos being the Greek word for dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as the name suggests, it was largely an interview-based program. Uh, I started it actually in college radio when I began my PhD at the University of Texas. Wow. Uh, it was just for me initially a diversion. Uh, I wanted something to break the monotony of reading and research and so on. Um uh, speaking PhD directly students. to our hearts. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I had done radio before. In fact, I did radio at Stony Brook uh, uh, at WUSB. Uh, the... the the campus radio station so it was something that was close to my heart obviously by by 2010 podcasting was becoming a thing so I started basically a program that was both radio and a podcast and then when I came to Greece initially I came here to do my dissertation research I continued producing it independently so I kept that going until last year and then the pandemic came along and it just became too much to handle so i thought a decade was enough and i retired the program
0: oh that is a nice longevity um so michael's been kind enough he's sharing his podcast with us so you can find it on the website um i know i'm going to listen he said there's a noam chomsky interview which speaks to my heart um i'm just curious How uh, was that experience interviewing Noam Chomsky? It was,
3: not only was it a nice experience uh, actually getting to speak with him and to ask him some questions, which that interview focused on the Greek economic crisis and as things stood at that time, it was in 2012. Uh, But even just getting the interview with him was an interesting process because he had made a few comments and some other interviews about what was happening in Greece, and I figured I might as well go for it and try to get an interview with him and we'll focus just on the Greek situation. Uh, I contacted him at his MIT email address and initially I didn't get a response, so a couple of weeks later I sent the follow up and after I sent the follow-up, one of his, I guess, assistants responded and said that uh, he would be interested in doing an interview, but we're booking now six months in advance. Mm -hmm. So it was April of 2012 and they could schedule me in for October. And I had no idea what I would, what I was going to be doing and what my schedule would be like in October, but I just sort of picked the day and pick the time and figured, I'll just make sure to keep that day and that time clear. Um, and they also told me it has to be exactly 20 minutes that he doesn't have time. Mm-hmm. so. I tailored my interview accordingly. Obviously, if I had the chance, I would ask him a million questions, but I only I think asked seven. Um, and literally at 20 minutes and zero seconds, he was like, OK, I have to go now. And that was it. But it was an insightful interview, it got published on the Huffington Post and then it got republished and some people found it and asked for permission to translate it in other languages. Uh, of course it was broadcast under radio. I did a Greek voiceover of it as well. So Greek speakers could also, uh, access the interview and the podcast,
0: of course, is still up. It's still online. Great. Wow.
3: And, and we'll have a link
2: to that in the program notes.
0: Yeah. That's Adam's worst nightmare. I said <laughs> that we only have an hour to record with you, Michael and Adam's like an hour. <laughs> I'm like, Adam, <laughs> what happens when we only have 20 minutes with a person? It's gonna we'll be-
2: We'll say, hi, how are you? And then we'll say, all right, it's right, it's been real.
0: Yeah, no, our, <laughs> yeah. our uh, pace is gonna quicken. <laughs> but <sighs> um, so, Michael, I know when you first reached out to us, um, you had expressed there was a type of dilemma, so to speak. Can you explain what the dilemma is it seems like it's currently going on, because um, I know it's always in the Twitter sphere with hashtag academic Twitter, this type of dilemma. So what are you experiencing in Greece?
3: Uh, there's actually two things. There's what I've been experiencing in Greece over the past three years from the time that I completed my PhD to the present. And then there's also what I've been experiencing during that same period, but relating to my uh, my dissertation committee back in the US. As I mentioned before, I did my PhD at the University of Texas. I completed it in May of 2018, so just over three years ago. And back then, everything seemed to have gone pretty well uh, in terms of my defense. I didn't get tortured too badly by my committee. Um, they, uh, they approved my dissertation with some revisions, which I completed uh, and everything seemed okay at the beginning. And then I came back to Greece uh, soon after that, because I had the opportunity to begin working at an American affiliated uh, institution here in Greece, a private wow. institution. Now, the first thing I'll mention very quickly without going into too many details is that in Greece, just like in many other European countries, the university system is officially a public monopoly. So the only official universities in Greece, for instance, are publicly owned and operated, but there's a variety of what they call private colleges in Greece. So they call themselves colleges instead of universities, but they're essentially universities. They offer university level coursework in a number of different uh, subjects. And they usually, this is the way they sort of get around the existing laws; uh, they offer degrees from foreign institutions, so uh, institutions either from the U.S. or from the U.K. typically. Uh, so, students at those universities, those colleges, usually get these foreign degrees. So, it's like they studied overseas. Hmm. So, that's how they operate. And the particular institution where I began teaching and the fall of 2018 uh, was, as I mentioned, American-affiliated, and all of the teachings done in English. So mm-hmm. even though it's in Greece, an English language institution, top to bottom. So I was excited about it. I was teaching communication and journalism classes there with my PhD was in media studies. I, I sort of changed the directions. I didn't continue with political science. And um, I started as a part timer with one class, but then I got a second class the following semester, and they started also assigning me directed study students, thesis students, and things were going seemingly well uh, until suddenly they started not going so well. Um, a lot of strange things, I, I don't know if I can think of a better word than strange, just peculiar or peculiar, peculiar things started happening there in relation to my employment at that college. So that's created a situation that has escalated. And now it does not look like I am going to be affiliated uh, with that college going forward, even though they've never specifically told me why, uh, uh, or, and they've never even specifically told me you're not continuing. It's sort of, they just kind of phased me out in a sense. So we can go into the details of all of that, but, they're, they're, they've just done a lot of things that I consider questionable. And then in the meantime, uh, being that all throughout this period, I was a part-timer. So I didn't have this sort of uh, job security going forward. Uh, I was always looking at other possible positions. And a couple of years ago, I came across a position at the University of Cyprus which is a public university. And it's in the times 500 top, top universities in the world. Uh, it's the biggest university by far in Cyprus, which is a country uh, to the south, east of Greece. It's an island nation. Uh, they have actually a very burgeoning uh, uh, university landscape. Uh, because they're one of the few European countries that has really sort of opened up to private universities as well. So a lot of students go to study in Cyprus. It was a good opportunity and I requested uh, recommendation letters that were required as part of my application. And one of the recommendations that I requested was from my dissertation uh, supervisor back at the University of Texas. And uh, she's a pretty prominent professor she does a lot of work even outside of the institution with various organizations and entities. And this is where the other peculiar stuff happened. I mean, we can talk about my college here and follow up questions, but what happened with this dissertation supervisor was I requested a letter, she agreed to write it in writing. Mm-hmm. I have her e- the, the email uh, where she agreed. Uh, she knew the deadline, which was about seven or eight weeks uh, away and then She, I I saw that she was not submitting a letter uh, in the the application tracking system. I saw that she had not submitted a letter. I followed up with her two or three times, very kindly, just to remind her about the letter and the deadline, no Mm -hmm. response. And ultimately I was getting very close to the deadline. I needed that third letter. I was not getting it from her. And I ended up having to ask someone else at the last minute because it didn't appear that it was certain that she would write that letter and ultimately she didn't and where things got even more peculiar was when i followed up after the deadline just to say you know i know that uh sometimes things get in the way you might have had you know like a, a work you know for workload reasons or whatever may not have been able to get to my letter and i understand uh, but i just wanted to inquire to make sure you know that everything is okay um, mm-hmm. and so forth. And she just never responded, even to that letter after the fact, when there was like no pressure of meeting a deadline or anything. So I ended up having to, because I found this so strange, I, I really just wanted to know why she wasn't responding anymore, and why she didn't write this letter, because we never had a disagreement, we never had um, any sort of uh, differences uh, from a from an academic or scholarly point of view. Uh, like I mentioned, my defense went pretty smoothly, all in all. So I was kind of at a loss as to why suddenly she was incommunicado. So I ended up contacting my the department head, who was actually not even someone I knew, because he had taken over after I graduated. But I sort of introduced myself to him and explained the situation. And I think I also contacted the overall the College of Communication where my uh, department was housed. And eventually there was a back and forth. And I finally heard back from the department head who told me that uh, she does not want to write a letter for me. Uh, she's essentially not explaining why she won't. Um, and of that's it you know she just doesn't want to so I never received an explanation I was kind of just left with this question mark and as you can understand and I'll I'll wrap up my my response here as you can understand this could potentially be an issue for me going forward because if I do apply to some other institution that might request uh, letters of recommendation being that I'm still essentially an early career scholar I think they would probably expect that I would include a letter from let's say my dissertation supervisor and by not having one it might be an issue or you know at the very least it might seem a little bit strange so mm. uh the, th- the but the thing that bothered me the most what wasn't even so much that she won't write the letter but I won't even get an it, it's a fact that I'm not even getting an explanation uh did I do something or is that just her policy now? She doesn't really write the letters or what is it? I don't know.
0: I can only guess. Hmm.
2: It's a pretty singular policy. If if so.
0: Yeah. Well, and like Adam, right. I'm finishing, I'm defending in a year, but Adam still relies. I mean, and I will too, like you're saying, Michael, that. Eyebrows start to get raised if you don't have someone from your dissertation committee writing a letter for you, and like Adam has to rely on his committee still for sure. job applications in academia. Um, Even for job yeah. applications outside of academia, people want mm-hmm. to like th-
2: those are ju- those are just the go-to people, and and our academic listeners already know this, and our non-academic listeners can can very well imagine. Right. These are these are people that you spend five to ten years mm-hmm. working with, right? Because the dissertation advisor doesn't just show up in your doorstep like a baby. They you they're they're the person you work with in coursework as a rule. Um, I took, I want to say two classes, but it might have been three in, the, mm-hmm. in a matter of three years with um, with Doug, with Professor Pfeiffer. And so so. so that was before the dissertation. And then he was the one that I was in relatively constant contact with for the six or so year period when I was writing. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, he's your supervisor. I mean, I think because we're speaking to such a general audience here, uh, high community. um, (laughs) And I think it's important that when we say dissertation director or advisor, in, yeah, that we explain a little. Yeah, in other careers, you would call that your supervisor, your manager, like, and it is that type of relationship. So, yeah, if you don't include them in your future applications, it's like you've just right extinguished anyway. a whole career that you were doing for six to ten years.
2: And if I could put a footnote to this, their job is to put you forward, right? Like Doug was sending when. When I was more gung-ho on like actually participating in academia after graduation, Doug was sending me emails with things like scholarship opportunities and mm-hmm. ideas for places to go to work and stuff like that. Like there's, there's active, and, and he was not the most active participant in my academic life. This is just, this, this is like the, the, the basic expectation is that they're going to do things to forward your career. So then take a step away from that and and say, okay, well, at least they wouldn't hinder your career. And then a step away from that, and we have Michael's case.
0: Yeah, so where they, many players. Where they're
2: actively hindering your career by- Yeah, I mean- Or passively
0: hindering it, if you prefer. Yeah, Michael, as you were speaking, I've like already workshopped so many pitches and I don't wanna belittle exact, I don't wanna belittle your situation, it's really Egregious. Um, but I'm even just thinking like pitching this as a documentary. Yeah. Peculiar affairs as a part-time academic, <laughs> strange sensations in the <laughs> office. I mean, there's a lot of these just I feel
2: like you're you're triggering yeah. Andrew by talking about this because this well, is this is I... the
0: nightmare in some ways, right? Well, it's that we've had a lot of these discussions. Um, when we first began, Adam and I were saying, we're kind of going back to our season one roots, which Shruti, who you all, if you haven't listened, listen, we'll include it again in this um, episode discussion, but Shruti Michael is a, she's finishing her dissertation at Stony Brook, um, very close to her, and she had to reconfigure her whole committee and at the last minute, and she can't rely then on the others who were part of the first committee to write letters. So it's, I mean, she's been able to navigate that, but like Adam's saying, you know, I'm lucky enough that I have someone who's a few committee members who send me fellowship applications or professional professionalization advice. Like I do have the ideal working relationship, but I also know, um, you know, like, what do you do when, The rug is pulled out from under you it's and like you're saying you're just asking for transparency and you're not getting you're getting stonewalled Mm -hmm. um so what are what is the rule like what is the etiquette yeah it's frustrating i can understand why you would be frustrated
3: it is frustrating because you you really can only begin to speculate in your mind as to what other person is thinking and why they're acting that way and where you also mentioned the example of the other Stony Brook student and how she had to reconfigure her committee that actually also happened to me earlier on in my process and it was also peculiar because my initial advisor or supervisor um, was a professor that I had actually worked very closely with I was her teaching assistant for a couple of years Mm -hmm. and out of all of those uh, professors, she's the one that had perhaps the closest match to me in terms of research interests and so forth. And I had written my proposal and she was in the process of reviewing it supposedly. And then I received an email um, telling me that two days later she would be resigning from the university oh um, in protest over a law that had been voted in by the Texas state legislature, mm. uh, having to do with um, having to do with campus carry.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, okay, I can understand that. My issue was, she gave me two days' notice. I don't think she made that decision two days prior. To her departure date. So I was waiting for about seven weeks for her feedback. And then instead of getting that feedback, uh, I just got this very short email basically telling me I'm taking off in two days. Um, and so she retired and she did not in fact give you feedback on your, um, what was it, your proposal? My proposal, she, she didn't retire. She didn't immediately start uh, teaching somewhere else though uh she just left and uh she had not given me feedback up until that time and only because i pressed her a little bit she eventually did send me some comments but nothing that he could say is really really what i was expecting let's say um i think she she sort of like half-heartedly offered to remain on my committee as an outside member but i already had an outside member and i didn't want to reconfigure my committee more than necessary and beyond that, I just was not so happy that she kind of just gave me two days' notice, basically, um, for something that she probably knew she was, she was going to do weeks prior. So she ended up not remaining on my committee, and that's when I chose this new advisor. Uh, um, and, and I was okay with that in terms of working with those other individuals. I added also, of course, another professor to my committee because there was an open position, let's say, uh, but that also caused a delay because then the new advisor had to read my proposal and I sort. I, I was sort of like starting that process over again and I had yeah. to wait a few weeks for her to get back to me. Uh, she did give me initially quite a bit of feedback. Uh, I didn't have a problem there. Uh, but it was just a delay and, and I, my project was already taking long. So it was delays on top
0: of delays and it was just hmm. very frustrating. Yeah, this is the nebulous, um, nebulous dynamic of not having proper workplace etiquette in my opinion, which is when in so many other work settings, there would be, okay, well, if you leave, you have to communicate to everyone you manage. Right. Like, I have someone set up for you. Like, right. this is what's going to happen. But I'm always just, like, why I'm so thankful is I have a committee who, knock on wood, if they're out there, <laughs> I'm manifesting it, but has really worked well together and communicated. But there aren't spoken, it's almost like you have to know the unspoken rules of how to work together as an advising team. And unfortunately, who are the ones who really get thrown to the wolves is the precarious graduate students. And you feel whatever university dynamic she was feeling, like you're saying, it was about Texas open carry and that's very distressing. Um, but yet, where's the communication, chain? I'm like, these narratives are so common, and what Dr. Karen Kowski of the professor is in um, talks about all the time, which is um, how does this continue? Like, why is there no accountability? Right. Like, and what was, you know, Michael, the accountability for, I'm sure she wasn't the only one who left you in a lurch, you know, was there any follow-up with that, with the others that she left? Presumably she had other students. Mm
3: -hmm. Presumably she did have other students. And honestly, I don't know what happened to them and what type of communication existed between them or with the other members of the committee. I never really got a clear indication from them as to what their reaction was to, uh, to this. Uh, So I kind of just, from the moment I ended up reconfiguring my committee, we kind of just proceeded on almost as if this hadn't happened and that, you know, this was, this was the committee now and that was that, but it was pretty obvious that there wasn't really a proper chain of communication or, or, or a certain set of procedures that was followed uh, in these sorts of situations. So it was very disappointing to me because as I mentioned, this just added more time to the process that was really unnecessary.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I wanna, I wanna put forward a contrasting example. I fall somewhere between Andrew and Michael which is that I had a teacher, uh, Professor Aisha Ramachandran, who was a Stony Brook professor, and then got headhunted, I guess you might say, by Yale. Um, and what she did was she gave me notice, and then she left, and then she remained as my outside reader, mm-hmm. which is what we call courtesy, right? Yeah. Um, and and obviously she like any it it happened to fall out that there was no outstanding deadlines between me and Aisha at the time that she went to Yale. But I would have been gobsmacked if she had left, gone somewhere else, and said, well, I'm not your professor anymore. You can cry about it. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I yes. There are professors, of course, who treat their students like the humans that we supposedly are, but the fact that there's no accountability for the professors who do not do that is probably going to sound really strange to people in the outside world, but maybe not so strange when you consider the power dynamic. Professors professors can't be fired for putting forth ideas, that's fine, but they can't really be fired for much of anything else either, unless Unless they commit some egregious crime and there's sufficient evidence of it, and even then, uh, even then, as, as you'll as you'll hear just from listening to our catalog, there aren't necessarily consequences.
0: Yeah, yes. and what what it seems like is so needed, especially in your situation, Michael, was just someone to hear your voice. Like just understand the concern the okay well what do i do now how is this delaying me who can i turn to and in that case i would ask what was the role of your chairperson in the department uh she
3: had a I'm assuming you're talking about the, the new chairperson. Yes, that I new had president. all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. She had a pretty prominent role. She was even uh, the 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 chair of the department for a certain period of time. I think temporarily, but uh, she was one of the longest tenured professors there. Uh, she ran uh, some uh, institutes that were affiliated with the department. Uh, participated from what I remember in some of the department's overseas programs and was often an advisor or brought in as an expert on certain topics by governmental and non-governmental organizations. So this was a pretty prominent individual. Hmm.
2: Just just to um, just to loop around. this is the same person who um, ghosted you.
3: Uh, yes,
0: with the with the recommendation letter, and was a former chair of the department. Yes. Wow. Hmm. Okay, that's tough to swallow. It's, um,
2: it's 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 hard for us to listen to, but like, but I think the difference between what Andrew and I are react how Andrew and I are reacting to this and how a um, and listener outside of academia might react to this: is that we're not we're not really batting an eye. I mean, we're okay. We're a little bit taken aback, but we're not saying, "Oh, this could never happen." Of course, it could happen, and and of course, there would be no consequences.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you know why I and I've opened up about this and worked through it, um, gotten. Uh, you know, ways, ways to discuss this with my committee uh, members, uh, which was my oral exam process where I had to retake it for a specific part of the list, a specific section, especially if you don't know the process of oral exams and you're listening. Um, It was one specific um, literary period that I redid. And it got to the point where I was so nervous that this particular section was going to end me in the PhD program, just this one component. And I went to our graduate director, which is usually the chain, is if you have a concern, you go to the graduate director and you know expressed how nervous I was, how I was feeling that, I was trying to do all the steps right. I didn't know where I was not communicating well. Um, like, what else can I do to make sure that this is not going to impede my progress? And did, thankfully, have a very supportive graduate director, and I'll always be thankful for the whole graduate administration around me because they had, you know, said that they were going to make sure this was not going to impede me, but what happens if I had faced a completely opposite reaction, almost, you know, the way you're describing Michael, if I had been ghosted, if no one was responding to me, I mean, exactly, it would have just caused this anxiety spiral. Yeah, and we're already, you're already in such a state of um, not knowing what the protocol is, or like Adam's saying, knowing that you can completely have um, those in your department turn on you and what's going to be the outcome? Will you be protected? I mean, then it becomes a union issue. And I am curious, Michael, have you turned to a union, like your former union? uh, Uh, Honestly, I didn't.
3: Um, I pretty much just thought that I will try to get answers directly from the department and the faculty and being that I wasn't actually there anymore as a student and as a student employee, uh, that that was really all that I could do. So I'd never really pursued that route and maybe I should have, but ultimately I'm not even certain if it would have made a major difference or not. Uh, At this point though, uh, I've pretty, pretty much ridden off any possibility of being able to communicate with this professor again. And again, I stress this: we never had like a falling out. It's not like there was some type of intellectual disagreement or anything else that I'm aware of. Uh, no reality show me. Us. Nothing, <laughs> yeah. we didn't get into an argument over politics or anything. It was just suddenly no
0: more communication. Hmm. Yeah, it's, but I, I agree. I think, like my own opinion, knowing so many who are in um, administrative roles in our union, that it really is so helpful for providing transparency and advocacy for when you're on campus. But, you know, you and Adam, you're not on campus anymore, you are you're in this, you hope that someone responds back to you and does the right thing. But there really is no way to put pressure because you're not protected by the union. I mean, anyone out there listening, if I'm wrong, or we're, we don't know that there is a way to still get the union involved, I'd be thrilled to know that. Because right. I if, if there is a way to continue to have the union advocate for you when you leave, um,
2: I don't know about it. Well, I I will say for one, that not only was I no longer paying dues to the Union after I graduated, but I was no longer paying dues to the Union after year five, because that's when I that's when my teaching. um, That's when my my teaching fellowship ended and when I started being on my own financially. So I lost my health insurance. Yeah. um and had to go and had to switch to the student health insurance uh which was worse for what i needed uh it was probably it would probably would have been fine for if i was a if i was living in stony brook the way andrew is in the area mm-hmm. uh but it wasn't fine for somebody living in manhattan um yeah so so there the, yeah. there are I, I have trouble imagining having a labor dispute of any kind, especially once I'd already left the university and thinking, oh, the, oh, I should go back to the union when already I had lost the protection of the union, you know, for my teeth and organs
0: and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and once you don't have that stipend that comes mostly in the humanities, I mean, right, and Michael's in media studies, so humanities, um, that comes mostly from teaching, unless you do find one of the rarefied research um, fellowships um, that do exist, but, you know, you have to really look, they're not publicized as much as in the sciences. Um, But yeah, like Adam's saying, once you're out of that stipend, any kind of fellowship on campus or teaching on campus, it's very traumatic because you've lost the union um, support and you've also lost, you're in that in between where you're still considered an employee though. In a way, you're considered a student employee and that's where I think we really, what Michael you're targeting is that you're still considered, you're an employee on your own, right, in your part-time position that you had in Greece, like all of the jobs you're applying to now, but every time you go back to your PhD granting institution, they consider you a doctoral um, student in a way, that you still need to look to the department for letters. and collaboration so it is it's I mean it's why I remember when Sophia we had a guest on Sophia early on and talked about that process of even when you lose your email address and it happens um, I don't know six months Adam like very quickly something like
2: that at Stony Brook it's it's fast at some institutions it um, takes longer yeah, it's, it's frustrating. There, there are a lot of these ways that we have of, of feeling of being made to feel powerless, but um, we should definitely move on to the next thing because Michael, you said you had a second-
3: Yes, yes. Issue. Yes, and I, I, think, I think that actually, this is a very good transition point because from the moment that I started working at this private college in Athens, which again is US affiliated, uh, first of all, there was no union representation. So this ties into a lot of the problems that then followed and the recourse that was available to me or not available to me. So I began teaching there in the fall of 2018 and at the end of 2019 I was having a conversation with one of the high-level administrators there, who is Greek-American and was actually an administrator at U.S. universities for about 25 years, if I if I remember correctly. So this is someone who has experience in university administration in the United States, but went back to Greece, where he was originally from, uh, for this position at a very high level within the university or the college. And he told me that a that they suddenly secured some extra funding in the middle of the academic year, which itself seemed a little strange, but okay. And they said that they were opening up a new position in my department, communication, and that I should apply for it. And I was told what the salary would be for that position. I was told it would be full-time. And the... Um, salary was fairly good by Greek standards and I was made it, it was sort of like implied that this uh, very strongly implied that this would be the net salary, not the gross salary. So I applied I went through an interview process. And what's the difference? Uh, gross versus net, it's you know before or after taxes basically and, and other sorts of withholdings. So um, so I, I went through the interview process. Everything seemed to be going well. I was told that I was uh, hired. And then when I went in to sign my contracts, what I saw on the contracts was different from what I had been told verbally in terms of the salary, first of all. And second of all, in terms of the fact that I had been told full time, but the two contracts I was given, and this is another sort of peculiar thing. There was a a college contract and then there was the paperwork that was filed with the Greek labor department. And in the Greek labor department paperwork, I was listed as a full-timer, but in the college contract I was listed as a part-timer. So I asked about this discrepancy and I was told that this was actually a part-time position, but by being listed as a full-timer in the labor department paperwork that I would receive additional, what they call here stamps. In other words, I would receive like additional social security benefits in the future. Um, And this was supposedly like a benefit uh, that they were providing, but they were sort of piggybacking on the state providing that benefit. Uh, They were not actually as an institution giving me any of the full-time employee benefits that they offer to full timers like private insurance and a few other things. So I told them, look, you know, this is not what I was originally told and I have to review this before I agree to it. And as I reviewed it, more questions came to mind because I was trying to figure out if this was in my interest or not. And it became clear very quickly that my asking questions just about salary and, Uh, travel funding for conferences and things like that, it it became clear that this was unwelcome. So eventually, I was told to go to speak to human resources, they answered my questions, and then I suddenly received an email from that administrator, the Greek American, telling me to go to his office the next day, he didn't tell me why, and when I responded and said, uh, I would like to be prepared for this meeting in, in terms of knowing what it's about more or less, He told me issues of collegiality, period. No further explanation. At this meeting, he was so unprofessional and aggressive toward me, like smacking his hands on the table, um, gestures with his arms, raising his voice at me. And what was perhaps the most egregious thing of all was that he rolled out a series of supposed complaints against me. Three, three in total. One was from that meeting I had with HR the day before. The claim was that I interrogated uh, this individual in HR like a lawyer. That was apparently a complaint. And then the other two were supposed incidents from many months back that are just ludicrous. If I if I describe them, I don't see the point. But they were just ludicrous. They're they're not, you know, like. They're not at all anything that anyone would take seriously. Uh, and they were also untrue, by the way, the way that they were reported and then delivered back to me by this individual, this administrator. Um, I was not given a chance to respond. The This administrator basically told me in a very aggressive voice, they're telling the truth and you're not, period. End of story. No discussion. Um, and of course, no explanation was given as to if, if he was hanging on to these reports against me for so many months, why wasn't they made aware of them earlier, first of all? And second of all, they did hire me. So they weren't the problem when I was hired. They were a problem suddenly when they began to ask some questions about this position. So that was all very strange. So and I just, I just want to cut in.
2: You started receiving, I want to make this very plain what what it sounds like to my ear is that you started receiving this very unprofessional pushback when you started when when you were showing yourself less than complicit in what sounds like fraud yes right mm-hmm. putting putting your putting you down as a as a full timer with the government but as a part timer with the university so that you can get government benefits that's that's fraud
3: Yes. And it's not something I would feel comfortable being a part of. Uh, In addition to me being uncomfortable with the overall situation where I was told one thing and being presented with another thing. Things got even stranger where at the end of that meeting, this administrator told me very dismissively that if I if I still wanted the contracts, uh, they were with his assistant in the other room. Uh, So I picked up those contracts, which were in an envelope, and there were two different contracts, again, from the ones I had seen previously, and they were also contradictory between them. One was for one was an unlimited term contract, so no expiration date, and the other was a limited term contract for the same exact position. So obviously, if I did decide to accept this position, I didn't Mm -hmm. know which of the two was valid, because it can't be both. And supposedly my deadline to decide was the next day. So I sent this administrator an email essentially saying, look, I have these two contradictory contracts, which one is the valid one? And he didn't reply until Monday to tell me that, oh, it's this one, the, the definite term contract with the expiration date, but it's too late now anyway, because it's Monday. I mean just total a, a total complete lack of any semblance of professionalism. So you were you you were being given an offer you couldn't refuse so to speak. Mm. Kind of yes you could say that. Yeah. Now and I just, ended up reverting yeah. back to my previous part-time position which honestly that would have been my decision anyway because I was just not comfortable with what was going on with this other position. So problems continue though the the provost that, that was his position he did tell me that we would revisit this issue in September of 2020. We never did. And then uh, what I noticed is beginning in September of 2020, they began reducing my course load. So I had two courses in fall of 2020, but no thesis or directed study supervision. And in that spring, only one course with no thesis or directed studies. And they didn't include me at all in the uh, the full schedule, or the summer schedule. Yeah. And they also seem to have withheld me from the planning emails for the fall and summer schedules. Now, beyond that, what I will say quickly is that another peculiar thing that then followed was this past spring, uh, I was told that it was time for uh, a teaching observation to take place in one of my classes. I had gone through this once in my first semester there, And I was sent the faculty handbook, let's say, that explained what the procedure would be. And I was asked to pick a date. So I picked the date that I thought I had a particularly engaging topic. Um, The observation took place, supposedly. These classes were online. So that professor that was observing me, who was the associate head of the department, um, was logged in and then the class was on a Friday, the following Tuesday, I was told that my PowerPoint was not visible and that I just kept talking and, you know, as if I was oblivious to the fact that there was no presentation. And this professor was very strongly implying that uh, I was technically incompetent and sort of not on top of things. And it was just, you know, to put it bluntly, it was BS. So, In the meantime, no student had complained that they couldn't see my PowerPoint and students, you know, in the online environment and in my experience they would speak up if there was a problem Mm -hmm. they couldn't hear me or couldn't see something so no one did. But I did go back to them and I asked them did anyone have any problems with last Fridays uh, presentation, and all of the students had responded. Uh, said no, we could we could see it just fine. And then I used that same file to continue my presentation on Monday and on Wednesday. And again, no problems. I asked them just to make absolutely sure. I took all of this to the professor that evaluated me, and her response essentially was all the students in the world wouldn't change my mind. And She then stopped responding to me, even though she was supposed to actually, as as part of the procedure, schedule a meeting with me. She Mm -hmm. never did. She stopped responding. I contacted the Dean about this issue. The Dean wrote back to me within 15 minutes by email and basically took my words and put them in quotation marks, ironic quotation marks, totally belittled everything I told her, ignored my situation, And then randomly a week later, I get an email from another administrator, uh, the same one who was pounding his hand, hand on the table, telling me that the observation was withdrawn. But by then I already knew that I didn't have classes for the summer or the fall. So, and this is where I'm going to wrap up. So I took all of this and I contacted the last individual that I felt I had any sort of pathway or recourse with, which was the president. Mm. who's American, not Greek American, just American. And he was president at a couple of universities in the U.S. before coming to Greece. And he responded initially and said, yes, we're going to investigate this fully and all of this stuff. And then a month later, uh, responded to me and basically just wrote one paragraph, essentially saying we did everything correctly and we hope that your experience at our college uh, is one where you'll stick with sort of like the positive memories that he had from here. So I felt like asking if everything was done correctly, why was the observation withdrawn? Yeah. Uh, obviously that was not addressed in his response.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, so now I'm pursuing different options as to what I can do about this, but there's no union for faculty or employees at this institution. And there's also no particular process through which you can sort of get an independent hearing Mm. regarding disputes within the workplace. There's no procedures in place. They do supposedly have a whistleblower policy. They do have an anti-harassment, anti-bullying policy, anti-discrimination and so forth, but they don't follow those policies. And none of those policies actually has a pathway where you can go to like an ombudsman or someone like that with your issue and they will sort of pursue it independently. There's nothing, it's so it's a very top to down structure. With- and you have really nowhere to turn. It's very easy for them to just brush you off. Mm-hmm. And are you thinking of hiring are you thinking of hiring a legal counsel? I'm thinking about it, but you know, this also pertains to a situation in Greece where courts are very slow, lawyers are, I'll put it very bluntly, uh, afraid to take on powerful institutions in the country, and foreign institutions as well. And you, my experience so far has been you tell them something like this, and they find excuses to just get out of, you know, representing you. Uh, and I've had I've had and family members have had similar experiences in Greece with other issues as well. Basically, they're, they're afraid. It's a country where democratic structures exist on paper but not in practice. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true about Greece. Um, and it, Greece kind of operates in many ways like a feudal society in a lot of ways. Pa- people that are in powerful positions have like Teflon surrounding them. You can't touch them. Uh, and that is not just in government, but it's also in institutions of various kinds. So it's that doesn't mean I'm not going to pursue it because I'm of the belief that if you've been if you feel that you've been wrong, you have to pursue it uh, no matter what obstacles exist. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I have a lot of confidence in the outcome. Mm.
0: I will say thank you f- just for sharing all of that, Michael. Yeah. Um, and what I can tell just, and I've never, Adam and I have never met Michael before, um, us interviewing him in person, um, that I can tell you're operating under such clear conscious, a clear conscience effort, uh, ethic in a way. Um, however, the people that you are dealing with had already been pulling the strings. So yeah. no matter what kind of logic you apply, the logic doesn't matter in their situation mm-hmm. because they're not, they're not abiding by any type of transparent system. And I think that's what's so frustrating is, and I'll say allegedly, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you no, know, I don't want to yeah. fall into anything, <laughs> but I do think that. It's so difficult because we're trained as PhD students and then eventually once you defend as scholars in your different careers that you go into and that's outside of academia as well, you're really trained to be a close reader, to follow ethics, to you know dot your I's, cross your T's. But what happens when you try to apply that system to a group that unfortunately is undermining you in your case, Michael. Undermining you, um, creating false allegations, writing up reprimand, reprimanding you with, um, it almost just seems creating a file against you because they already had a mission to phase out the position. So no matter what you could do, they were going to do it anyway. Like no matter how ethical you are, you're doing all of the right work with teaching and research, and the uh-huh. system's against you.
2: And right, we might, and I. Uh, I'm sorry, Just, go ahead, just a quick follow up. We might as well bring up what we talked about when you when you initially contacted us, which is that you have positive feedback from your
3: students. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I was just going to mention that. In fact. Uh, the course evaluations that I received from my students in the fall semester and this past spring semester, which I just saw a couple of days ago, are very strong uh, across the board in terms of both the statistics and the written comments. But again, I go back to the words of the associate head who said in writing, Uh, all the students in the world won't change my mind. And unfortunately, even beyond my own situation, this is not the first time I've heard various faculty and administrators at that particular institution speak that way about students. And this is not a public entity. Students pay tuition to attend this institution and it's a pretty significant sum by Greek standards. So um, they speak that way about the students that pay their salaries. to a large extent, and it's really just very disturbing. But Mm. it also shows that they don't seem to actually care about the feedback that students are providing. In fact, at the end of the spring semester, two students requested, um, two students that were working on their honors theses, they requested from their respective first readers to take me on as a second reader. And they both apparently had very positive things to say about me. Uh, And I did accept this was not uh, something that I was required to do, but I did it for them. And uh, it was, again, a reflection that at least as far as the students are concerned, by and large, I seem to be receiving some very good feedback from them. Uh, I also, because I do some journalism on the side, set up an internship program. that was made available to students and some of the students from that institution were given the opportunity to do an internship and this was completely unrecognized by this college as well and then i'll finally i'll also mention and again i'm, I'm uncomfortable self-promoting but i i i'm just going by the 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 statistics and the data and everything i've seen the department issues reports every year that are sent to the president and the president forwards it to the accreditation agencies that accredit the college and so on and in my department i even though i was a part-timer had more conference presentations and more paper and more papers in 2019 for instance than the rest of the department combined and uh and again as a, as a part-timer, even though there's several full-time faculty in the department. And then I was the only person in the department with a PhD that was not a full-timer. The other part-timers had master's degrees for the most part. So there was definitely something going on where they just seemed to not want to give me any further opportunities. Now, Why is that? I really do not know because they've, again, this goes back to this lack of transparency that we talked about regarding the dissertation advisors and so on. Mm -hmm. No explanation is given. They just decide something. Oftentimes it seems like they make these decisions behind closed doors or whatever it is that they're doing. And you're kind of left out of the loop and you're left guessing in the end. What I
0: can say, I can say what it is as a far outside observer you were the whistleblower, and you were damaging—you were damaging whatever they were doing behind the scenes.
2: Yeah, to my to my um, and
0: I'm not a uh, lawyer, but to, that's my, what it to my unfamiliar
2: like. ear, it, it sounds like you your your unwillingness to be complicit in their um, in their benefits fraud made them worry that you weren't that you, that they shouldn't keep you on because you wouldn't be a team player. Mm-hmm. Or right, that's
0: entirely possible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or you're going to report it.
2: And and so what so what ends up happening, of course, is that everything that you've described, um, all of the steps that you've taken, have been the sort of steps that you would take in a labor dispute with good faith actors. Mm-hmm. But of course, they're not. They're not worried. Oh no, no, is Michael not as good a teacher as our students deserve? They're worried. Is Michael to threaten our shit Mm -hmm. and so the response to the one and the response to the other are obviously going to be different so you're going to pursue these logical and sort of you're, you're going to pursue these these logical uh next steps documenting things and following up on emails and stuff like that and they're they're looking for a reason to ice you out and so Inevitably, you're going to give them that reason because it it doesn't have to do with whether you're a good enough teacher or whether you're a good enough scholar. Mm -hmm. You're you're playing two different games and that's why you're not winning.
0: Yeah, and again, (laughs) there's a lot going on from everything you're describing. A lot of nefarious things, allegedly, are happening behind the scenes. Yeah, allegedly. Yes, I want to say allegedly. We're just um, going to put an asterisk next to all of the notes. That it'll like be in the me. episode title, allegedly. Every, it, it, it's every, all, yeah, yeah, it's all perfectly. alleged. It is, if anything, as we wrap up, I just want to say to you, Michael, it means so much to see the truth telling and the truth seeking that you're doing, that yeah. it's important that you are so ethical, and everyone that we do have on our podcast, the whole through line is everyone wants to tell the truth and be transparent. And unfortunately, we're starting to find that so many institutions, this is way beyond academia. I mean, we we might tie it to capitalist institutions or um, especially um, capitalism in full force of what happens when you have bad faith actors like we're describing um, covering up and what happens when the truth seekers continue to hold their feet to the fire um yeah this was so important i thank you michael yeah. um thank you so much i no i have I, a, I, I have a last thought which is yes.
2: that that this is something that Andrew and I have talked about a lot. Um, what a university teaches and what they teach are two different things. So what, it, what they purport to teach, I mean, I, I, went to, I went to Columbia, right, I took the core curriculum, um, we learned all about Aristotle and like sticking to the middle ground, we learned all about Plato and like uh, sticking to the ideal and, you know, all of these ethicists, one after another, right, from, from Plato to, I think the, the latest one was John Rawls, right, and then what does Columbia do while I'm there is they, they use their, their force as the owners of the Manhattanville neighborhood, which was the sort of triangle of real estate from like 125th street to 130 something street, um, I think I've got that right to force out the lower and middle income residents in order to build new buildings right so what 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 we discussed in the classroom was one thing and what they actually did and what they were actually teaching us was a very different thing and that's the issue that i'm hearing again and the reason why i'm why we're we're not questioning your story, the reason why we're not like worried about that aspect. Your story is one in a million, fortunately, right? Of somebody going to an institution that purports to profess certain ideals, purports to teach certain ideals, but actually teaches other ideals by their actions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're gonna leave it on that. But definitely, Michael, you are more than welcome to come back and follow up with us. Um, yeah, our blog
2: is yours, uh, whatever, whatever, and, and we would love to include as much evidence as you're willing to provide as you can in all s- personal safety provide to corroborate your story to, to, to show that, that you mean business when, uh, with what you're talking about, um, and if, if you can't provide that, if you like if you if you feel that it would be a bridge too far, and that you would receive even more. Um, pushback from the universe retribution, thank you that's the word I was looking for,
0: then. Um, yeah, then we'll, you have we'll to have be to be let safe. your words stand. Yeah, we want you to be by in themselves a safe place so, and this is an appeal to all of you listening that. Like Adam's saying, unfortunately, Michael's narrative and experience is not isolated. I mean, you're going to hear, um, and you might have already heard from Helena Darwin, um, yeah. her experience, which is, you know, also um, a form of gaslighting. I mean, exactly. this is a theme of gaslighting, um, that if you've experienced any case like this please reach out right. to us ivorytowerboilerroom@gmail.com. room at gmail.com we want to feature your voice you can write for thank us you. too we'll share but more let us be your questions. ombudsman if
2: if the actual ombudsman at your university has failed you yeah well
0: on that note um thank you so much thank for you this, michael. michael we uh hope that all goes well
3: well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate the opportunity to you know to share these experiences. I know that there's a lot of uh, a lot of academics, especially younger academics, that have, if not having experienced the exact same thing that I've gone through, other similarly bizarre or egregious experiences as well. And I think it's important that these sorts of experiences get heard. And the very final thing I'll say is that unfortunately you know, all of this is leading to a situation where I'm even looking now outside of academia uh, to see what I can do. But uh, I'd be happy to provide whatever I possibly can uh, as far as um, corroborating evidence. I mean, I'll see what I think is like the most feasible material that I could share. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share this with you.
0: As we say here at the ivory tower boiler room, Let's put a bookmark in this. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room team consists of me, Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, our Editor-in-Chief, Adam Katz, our Media Director, Erica Grumet, our Chief Contributor, Mary DePippi, and our Marketing Assistant, Jaren Usta. We thank you all for listening, so please make sure that you like, subscribe, and share the podcast. Review it, Um, and if you can, please do donate to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, We are all volunteers here, and we do rely on donations to help build and grow the community. It helps me continue to get really exciting content and book really creative guests so allowing for the creative writers to come the academic writers um, the performers to come anyone who's literary and artistic it just helps me continue to expand this public humanities vision Um, also make sure that you do follow us on instagram follow us on twitter and you can even join our facebook group all at the ivory tower boiler room Thank you to words matter bookstore, our sponsor, and we always are looking for interview requests or creative writing requests. Um, if you want to share your writing, if you think that you would be a great fit to be interviewed on the ivory tower boiler room, please email us ivory room at gmail.com. And now here is lover man our theme song. Um, co-created by Anne-Sophie Anderson, my dear friend, and Megan Ames. Enjoy!